the SaaS Revolution show, bringing you front row seats to the SaaS Revolution, courtesy of SaaScribe Media. I'm your host, as usual, Alex Sumer, and uh, our guest today is a general partner at Battery Ventures, uh, which is a global VC firm, uh, but he's based in Boston, uh, and he's worked with many world-class founders over a 15-year tenure in venture, including many uh, B2B SaaS enterprise software companies, such as Marketo, Omniture, Guidewire, Bizarre Voice, and Sprinkler. Um, so I'd like to say uh, welcome to the show, uh, Neeraj uh, Agrawal. Thank you, Alex. Looking forward to it. Uh, excellent. So how's it going today, Neeraj? Good. Good. We started the new year. It's uh, warm and sunny in uh, Boston. By warm, I mean it's like 30 degrees, so okay. it's uh, warm enough for us here. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. And, um, you, you know, uh, before we get into, uh, I guess, kind of the theme of today's show, do you want to give me a little bit, uh, I, I gave an intro to yourself, but a little bit of an intro to who Battery Ventures are? Sure. Happy to do that. So Battery is a, a global venture firm. Uh, we've been around 30 plus years now. We're investing out of Battery 10, uh, that's a $900 million fund. Uh, to give you context, Battery 1 uh, was a 1984 fund with only $34 million. So uh, both Battery and the industry have come a long way uh, in the last 30 years. I've been at Battery last uh, 15 years and, and have really uh, watched the entire SaaS ecosystem kind of develop uh, during that time. And it's been a, it's been a really fun space to... Uh, think about to invest in to to help uh, uh, reach the next level, uh, but overall, Battery as a firm, we uh, we're investing Battery uh, Ten, which is a nine hundred million dollar fund. What's a bit uh, uh, unique about us is how stage agnostic we are. We we probably do roughly a third of our investments in seed and Series A companies. Uh, for example, like Sprinkler, where we're the largest uh, shareholder and the Series A investor there. Uh, and then all the way through to uh, uh, pre-IPO rounds, which is uh, when we got involved with uh, companies like uh, Exact Target and, and Marketo. And uh, what we've what we've realized over the years is that if we're uh, working with great companies, great founders in product markets that are inflecting based on uh, real customer demand, great things will happen. And so the sooner we can get involved, the better. But we're happy to get involved uh, at any stage along the journey. Okay, awesome. And, and I mean, uh, I, I mentioned some of the names, uh, some great names there, Marketo, and you mentioned, you know, Sprinkler, Bizarre Voice. Uh, I think now you're working or, you know, you've invested in App Dynamics and, uh, you know, quite a few, uh, if it's still okay to use the word unicorns there. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I look, I think uh, these companies are great companies, whatever uh, people want to call them, it's somewhat less relevant. But, you know, another example is a company like Coupa, which, uh, We've been an investor in now seven years, and over the last three or four years, it's really grown very quickly, and uh, they've been in the press quite a bit. So, um, yeah, I think that we're still in the early innings of this SaaS revolution, as you pointed out, and uh, we're going to see a lot of market cap created in, in this overall category. Okay, awesome. So, so, so recently, uh, well, actually, just before uh, Christmas, uh, I, I published an episode of the uh, the show uh, talking about building engines of growth with with Lincoln Murphy uh, from Gainsight and Sixteen Ventures, and 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 I guess kind of you know moving from engines of growth, I, I thought it was a, a kind of neat, almost neat segue to you know discuss with you you know a formula or perhaps more appropriate word you know it could be a mantra 
for, for, for SaaS success or go-to-market success um, uh, and perhaps further even defining, you know, what success is because that could mean, you know, many things. Um, you know, talking about becoming a billion-dollar business. Uh, so, uh, you, you know, does that sound, uh, you, you know, okay for, with you to talk about? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so, and, and, and actually, I think, you, you know, part of the... Uh, the, the reason for sort of picking that theme is, you know, beginning of 2015, uh, I think February, I think, uh, I read the, the, the SaaS adventure uh, on TechCrunch and uh, not being a, a sycophant here, but it really was, you know, one of my favorite and most memorable pieces of content I read in 2015. Uh, and and I, I, I read a lot of content in 2015. So, so kudos uh, uh, for, for that. And uh, I think, you know, um, in that article, which I'll link to in, in the show notes, you talk about seven phases of go-to-market success for SaaS companies and, you know, looking at the path to 100 million ARR and, you know, the billion dollar uh, valuation, having researched the path of, of those that have done it before, like Marketo and ServiceNow and Zendesk, you picked out kind of seven phases um, which you center around a mantra uh, which uh, I understand is called T2D3, which is not a robot on Star Wars, uh, but a uh, <laughs> but a mantra, right? And, um, uh, and and T2D3 that stands for triple, triple, double, double, double. If that's right, correct. Okay, excellent, awesome. Just want to make sure I had enough triples and doubles in there. So, so there's seven phases of T2D3, and I think it's super interesting that. We go through them, you know, this kind of 2016 refresh for the podcast listeners. And so let's jump into the first one. Um, and, and this was uh, the first phase was establish a great product market fit. Um, now, how do you do this? Yeah, sure, Alex. So maybe give you a little context, you know, why we, we thought this would be an interesting framework to develop. Mm. It, it, it really, you know, we interact with a lot of SaaS founders and, uh, ultimately, I think venture capitalists are, are pattern recognizers you know, at, at their core. And it became clear to me that we were getting the same question, the same questions from these great founders who, who kept asking uh, a couple of things. One is, what is success? Uh, what is uh, appropriate level of growth? Um, you know, how should I think about this journey? And it was very interesting because they're they're very focused on the the here and now, but but not the kind of roadmap of how do you get from here to success. Interestingly, almost all of them had a very common perspective on success. They all wanted to get to 100 million of ARR, mm -hmm. and they all wanted to get to you know ideally a, a billion dollar outcome. Mm -hmm. um, and but the path from where they were to get there was was not not clear to them. You know, should they grow from you know, one to ten. Should they, how how do they think about this, and then how do you resource against it to to actually make it happen? And so, we realized through the companies we were working with that there was this kind of pattern that was that was developing, and and that there's a kind of a natural way to to sequence growth, both from a financial perspective, but but also operationally. Kind of what are the the key gotchas along the journey, and there are some kind of counterintuitive risk points along the journey. You think that the bigger you get, the easier it should get. And, and there are some points along the journey which I would argue are, are uh, incredibly risky points that if founders aren't thinking about in advance, they could be gotchas for them. And mm -hmm. so that was kind of the reason we developed this journey mm -hmm. and this framework. And 
basically at a, at a high level, uh, just to capture it, we think about the first phase is product market fit, mm -hmm. second phase is get to 2 million of, of ARR, mm -hmm. and then from there the T2D3 acronym takes over, so you go from 2 to 6 to 18, and then double, double, double to get to 100 plus in recurring and, you know, I think a billion dollar outcome. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, coming back to your question about product market fit, th this is something that as an investor we spend a lot of time uh, uh, thinking about. And there's two things that, that come to mind here. One is when an entrepreneur is starting a company, uh, there is this, this, this thing that happens sometimes which I call happy years, which is they'll spend a lot of time really talking to anybody who will return their call. I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's really hard to choose the path of being an entrepreneur. I, I think that that early phase is, is maybe not respected enough because the amount of risk that people are taking both professionally and personally to make this, to make this journey happen, um, it's really hard. And, and you gotta be willing to, to take a lot of uh, uh, stress and risk to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so during that journey, if you kind of have people talking to you, you're like, oh great, this is exciting and you know, let, me, let me get some feedback from these, these folks and, and what you find is a couple of things. One is when you do that, sometimes you don't end up with a common pattern of pain point amongst your early customers. And so what, what I look for is if you can talk to five, ten prospects and, and really get a sense of what their day-to-day -day life is like and what's the pain point that they have. And if they use similar words in, to describe their pain point, I think at that point you have a good sense of, of kind of uh, at least consistency on the pain point and then the product you develop will, will ideally address that, uh, that initial pain point. But having consistency around the pain point and ideally having consistency around the titles of the folks you're selling to will make the future phases of T2D3 much more uh, achievable. So that's how I think about product market fit. Okay, okay, awesome. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, for somebody um, as, as well myself who uh, I guess kind of within the last few months has you know uh, gone into the entrepreneurial uh, sort of you know journey and uh, not not launched a SaaS company uh, but still you, you know it's at the the early stage and you know taking on those risks it's something that uh, you, you know definitely um, hits home with uh, myself uh, as, as well as probably uh, many of the entrepreneurs uh, listening as well. Um, so yeah, really um, uh, in interesting uh, sort of points there. And um, um, so if, if we um, look at then the the second phase, this is you know from establishing you know great product market fit uh, to getting to two million ARR. Um, now you you know <laughs> this I guess a lot of SaaS entrepreneurs um, you know listening will will really be interested in you, you know because I think most of them will be in this you know really sort of early stage. Um, so you know how about how do you go about doing this? Sure. So so a couple of things come to mind here. One is um, one of the founders I work with. His name is Jyoti Bunsel. He's the founder and CEO of App Dynamics. Mm -hmm. And uh, I interviewed Jyoti recently in a, a video interview, and, and Jyoti mentioned something that um, he actually said this to me years ago and during this interview, uh, and that it really resonated with me, and I want to share it with your audiences. He basically said, ask the person you're talking to, so your champion at a customer, ask them, hey, how would you justify this, this purchase with your boss? Kind of what's the business justification for this technology? 
And that I thought was, it sounds so simple, but again, people are very happy talking to you. Um, I mean, prospects are happy talking to you. Uh, nobody wants to say no. Nobody wants to be the person that says your idea is not a good idea. And having, um, having a crisp way to articulate the value of your offering to make sure that people are willing to pay for it and that they're willing to prioritize it, right? Those are two different things that both need to come together for your company to achieve this kind of two million in ARR. So they got it's got to be a high enough priority pain point, and they got to be be willing to bring it to their boss and justify spending money on it. Um, the T two D three framework is a little biased towards um, I would describe kind of mid market and enterprise. Uh, Customers, so we think about it as thirty thousand to eighty thousand average deal size. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to I do want to mention that because there's a another playbook, and we've been thinking at some point to, to really articulate that one, which is much more of a kind of an SMB centric, pure freemium centric playbook. That also is a good playbook, mm-hmm. um, and we can come back and talk about that. But the one that I'm focused on right now in this article, and I think for this interview, is really the 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 mid-market and enterprise customers. And that, um, I think once you can get to this 30K to 80K deal size, if you do the math, that probably means, you know, 40, 50, 60 customers to, to land. Mm-hmm. And the, what I find here is the CEO is, is really the person selling all of these uh, deals. They're, they're bringing it in. They're looking for that commonality and pain point. Um, it's, a, it's a challenging stage. I would, I would describe this one as probably... One of the hardest ones to get to because you have to be willing to tolerate rejection. Um, but the thing that I, I would say I've noticed is many founders are, they're probably not, um, they don't value maybe their time as highly as I think they should in this phase. And I think about getting to a no quickly with a prospect as being equally valuable as getting to a yes. Uh-huh. And this is where Jyoti's kind of insight is really important. By forcing that conversation about, hey, how are you going to justify this business, uh, justify this purchase with your boss, really forces the, hey, I'm kind of intellectually interested versus I'm interested with my uh, checkbook. Yeah, no, absolutely. I I think great point there. And in fact, I've, I've, um, you you know, before my, say, entrepreneurial sort of career, I've had 11 years in sales. And the, the amount of time that, you know, you spent on, uh, perhaps uh, you know deals that are going nowhere. You can see actually, like you know, getting a a quick no is is very valuable, um, and also to the point of the um, you know the founders doing the early sales. I think you know from all the interviews I've done on the uh, the podcast, and um, I think you know if it springs to mind, uh, um, like Kyle Porter, for instance, and also uh, Michael Litt at Vidyard. Um, you know, I, I just sort of remember them saying that, you know, they were leading sales and, you know, making 100 calls a day. And uh, um, so that seemingly is, is, is what's needed at this uh, initial phase. So we, we move from that um, phase two then. So we've got, uh, let's say, two million in ARR um, and uh, we're moving into phase three, which is triple that two million to six million uh, in ARR. Um, now let's talk about that. Yes. Definitely. So a couple of a couple of things uh, come to mind here. One is just figuring out what, why why is triple kind of a good frame you know good framework for success. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes we'll meet meet founders that think, hey, doubling is great, right? Why is that you know not good enough? You know, 100% when GDP is 3%, it sounds like a pretty good outcome, right? Um, and so I, I would argue that uh, what we've noticed in the pattern is if you can triple in this phase, it really sets it up well for the next triple, which is actually the hardest part um, kind of in these first few phases is really that 6 million to 18 million. Uh, a lot of the infrastructure for that gets built in this phase, and I'll come back and talk about that. Um, some, some companies have experienced uh, faster than triple, um, and I believe that founders are now kind of feeling that, hey, maybe tripling is not good enough. And I would argue that it, it's not getting to triple in this phase. It's really kind of um, it's really it's good enough. But what's really important is getting to the eighteen to twenty million in the next phase. And whether you get from two to six or two to eight doesn't really matter. But if you have the infrastructure laid to get to eighteen to twenty going forward, that's super important. So um, we notice in the pattern that if you can triple here. That's a good goal. That's a good goal from a, a hiring perspective, team building perspective, cash consumption perspective, and so that's why we said you know triple here is is, is probably the right uh, the right goal. Uh, now, there's two ways to get there. Once I've noticed that once you can get to two million, it's actually not that um, statistically hard to get to six million. Um, meaning, you know, if an entrepreneur is good enough to get to two they will sell and do really well and, and probably end up close to six, at six, you know, almost almost regardless of their approach. But what I what I realized is this is the this is the phase where they have to shift from being product market focused, customer focused, deal focused, to being much more organization focused. And that's actually a very hard transition for, for founders or some founders to make, especially technical founders. Um, some technical founders believe that you know salespeople are overpaid. You know that you know the hard work is being done by the engineers, but the glory is being uh, captured by by sales folks. Uh, and you know, I I make the argument that if you can build a company that has great product and great distribution, and you put those two together, you'll have an awesome outcome. Uh, and so this is really a, a, a journey about building the go-to-market machine. Mm-hmm. And the foundation for that gets laid and gets laid in phase three, and so there's two approaches. I, I call it the hero approach, which is the CEO selling everything, mm-hmm. um, or the kind of sales organization approach, uh, which is hiring a sales VP, hiring five to ten reps, and getting them to actually sell. Where the CEO might be involved in a handful of deals, but but there are many deals closing that the CEO had no involvement in. And that's kind of a magical moment in a, in a company's journey. Um, and it, sometimes it's hard for founders to appreciate that, you know, stuff can happen if they're not 100% involved in a sales cycle. Uh, but there's, oh, I always notice this, this kind of light bulb goes off. And as soon as that happens, they realize that, oh, my God, we can scale this thing and get, to, you know, 50, 100 million of ARR now because I've got this next formula figured out. I just need to hire reps, get them productive figure out how to train them, recruit them, develop them, um, hire leaders, uh, hopefully grow leaders from within. And that foundation gets laid in this, this uh, in phase three. So I think this is a super important phase. Um, I would actually say most companies today are, are more in tune with doing this the, the right way. I think a couple years ago, 
I probably saw the hero approach um, 70% of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was kind of a catalyst for us writing about this. Today, I think I see it more like 30% of the time. Okay, yeah, so that's a, bit, a, a big shift there. And uh, I guess um, I, perhaps someone like, uh, or a company like HubSpot, um, you know, may have taken the, the, the sales machine approach uh, uh, rather than the hero approach during that phase with, uh, with Mark Roberge uh, um, and building out their, uh, their sales machine at that time. But uh, I, mean, I, I don't know if we know that for sure, but uh, it, it sounds about right. Um, and, and, and then, so the SaaS company, uh, you know, the SaaS startup has reached 6 million in ARR. They've tripled. Um, and then, you know, moving on to, you know, phase four in the journey, tripling again uh, to 18 million uh, this time. And uh, I think, as you, you said before, this is where the magic kicks in. So, so, so tell me uh, a bit more about how, um, uh, how they can achieve that. Okay, two, two things I'd like to point out to your audience. One is uh, this phase, I believe, is the most predictive phase of long-term success. Okay. So it's... If you go from 6 to 10, I think that you'll have a good outcome, uh, but it won't be a great, you know, it won't be one of the iconic SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really getting to uh, this kind of 18 million, tripling this phase is, is I think, critical, uh, and it, it sets up a lot of success. The, the engine that gets built here requires probably somewhere in the order of 15 to 20 sales reps uh, to really do this right. And that usually requires a second level of sales management. And let me explain what I mean by that. So early early on, the CEO is selling everything. And then I mentioned the prior phase, you hire a VP of sales who might have, you know, four or five reps that, you know, that team is selling. But the CEO CEO and the founder, that person's only two levels removed from an individual deal. And so it's pretty easy for that person to walk down the hall and talk to the individual rep and really have a sense of what's going on um, by just kind of brute force. In this next phase, when you get to 20 reps, and they're usually I find that somewhere around six to eight reps, there's kind of an ideal break point to introduce a, a leader. So once you're at this point, one VP of sales can't manage 15 to 20 people. And so you, you almost by definition need another layer of management. And so now you have the CEO, the VP of sales, you know, a kind of a director of sales, and then an individual rep. So you are you know, three levels removed from an individual rep, which means you're pretty far removed from the actual sales cycle and what's happening. And your ability to kind of walk the halls and know what's going on with just 20 reps is much harder. Mm. Um, and so why do I bring all this up? I bring this up because this is where all of your kind of training, your um, hiring, the profiling really matters. If you get this wrong and you got to reboot your entire sales team, you've probably lost 12 to 18 months. And that usually is the difference between ending up being the winner in a category and being number two in a category. And if you end up being number two in a category, it used to be a pretty good outcome. When I first started in venture 10, 15 years ago, number two was pretty good. You still made a lot of money. Now, if you're number two, you, you get your money back maybe a little bit, but you got to be number one in a category. And so the um, the kind of, the, it's, it's asymmetrical risk reward, I'd say, on the in this phase, because if you get it wrong, you're going to lose a couple of years and you probably lost winning the category. 
And if your competitor gets this right, they're likely to end up in that number one spot. And then once they end up there, it's hard for you to catch up. So uh, this is why I think this phase is critical. Um, building the right sales infrastructure, thinking about leaders and uh, reps uh, is important. Uh, and, and building out the, this kind of multiple layers of sales management earlier in the cycle. Sometimes what you'll find with founders is they will wait as long as they can before hiring kind of what I affectionately call overhead, right? They, they might have this point of view that if someone's not an individual contributor, you know, they're kind of expensive and they're not actually doing specific work, right? The individual developer, the individual sales rep is more important. Um, I, I make the argument that actually hiring in these leaders is critical because two things happen. One is the leader typically hires better individual reps, um, and that's great from the beginning. The second thing is when a new leader comes in, many times they're going to churn out half the people below them. And if they churn out half the people below them, that's another nine-month air pocket for you to deal with as a founder. And so shifting the mindset to hiring top-down versus bottoms-up is important. And that actually happened in phase three. That's when you thought about your VP of sales. You know, is, is that the right person to build, you know, kind of a much larger frame, framework for a sales model? Or, you know, are they going to tap out after 10 people? Um, so I think this is, this is kind of, these are the organizational things that are critical to get right in phase three and four. Okay, awesome. So phase four there, uh, the, the most critical phase. Um, and uh, I, I think for the, for the sake of uh, time on the podcast and for also the, the, uh, the audience who are predominantly, I would say, you know, early stage uh, SaaS founders, um, then perhaps we should, you know, focus on, you know, phase five, um, you know, as uh, the, let's say the final stage within this podcast, and we can perhaps sort of neatly summarize and, and sort of wrap up on phase six and phase seven. Um, I, I, I just think it's uh, perhaps sort of unlikely that, uh, um, you know, we've got too many uh, uh, within those stages that, that are listening, not to say that it, it isn't interesting for, um, for the audience. So, so if we, we jump into, um, you know, phase five, the, the double then, from 18 million to 36 million in ARR. Um, let's talk about, or you, you, you know, let me ask you, so, you know, how, how uh, does the SaaS founder and the SaaS company um, go about that? Sure, so a couple of, couple of points come to mind. One is, I, I have seen if you can successfully triple in phase four, in general, you, you know, statistically speaking, you will likely double in phase five. And so, um, you might say, well, what's the magic then? If it's going to happen, then, you know, why are we talking about this? I, I would argue that similar to phase three, when you're laying kind of foundations for future success, phase five is one of these phases where you're layering in the foundation for future success. And what I mean specifically for that, especially for U.S.-based companies, is really getting international operations up and running with the right foundation for success. Um, what I've noticed over the years is companies, when they think of international, they tend to go wide instead of going deep. And I've come to the conclusion that it's better to do less and do those countries right rather than trying to cover all of the waterfront at, at once. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I talk about international, I usually mean, hey, if you just get the UK working, if you can get the UK working, 
hire three or four reps in the UK, get the right reference accounts, think of it as a mini startup and really get it successful, that's, that's a great outcome. And then you can replicate that in Germany and France in the next year, and then you can you know, replicate that in Asia-Pac and Latin, Latin America after that. Uh, many times I'll, I'll meet founders who will, you know, they'll put a one person in, in UK, one person in France, one person in Germany, one person in Singapore, and usually those people churn out. There's not enough critical mass in their office, they're not learning from each other, they don't have reference accounts in the market to cultivate and, and use as reference calls for future prospects. But when you can kind of increase the density within one geo, you, you get this kind of uh, virtuous cycle going. And so I think that's an important thing to think about in, in this next phase. Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's really good advice. And actually, you know, personally, again, in, in my experience in sales, I've seen the the go wide versus the go deep uh, approach. And uh, I, I guess those that have uh, that I've seen that have gone wide, I think you know, I, I don't think any of them have become you know billion dollar companies. So uh, um, I, I think there's a lot to be said for that. And it, it does sound right that uh, you know going deep should be the right uh, uh, the right approach there. Um, so, um, really good insights there. So, I, I, I think then um, so we've gone through phases one to five, which uh, I, I would say certainly for our, our, our listeners, uh, the most sort of interesting phases. Whilst um, uh, I think, but perhaps you know, many of them, uh, you, you know, uh, hopefully want to become billion-dollar businesses. Um, you, you know, if we would uh, just sort of quickly uh, perhaps summarize the the, the phase six and. Uh, and, and seven of the the T two D three mantra, um, then I think we can kind of you know neatly you know come to uh, a, a, an end of this episode of the show, and then perhaps you you never know in the uh, in the future we uh, <laughs> we may have a, di- a different growing audience that we, we focus more on the uh, uh, on the latter stages, and we, we come back to this. But uh, um, so do you, do you want to kind of quickly sort of summarize uh, six and seven before we close out? Sounds good, Alex. Well, a couple of things I, I mentioned. Uh, th- in phase six and seven, really there's a lot more operational complexity to a business. Um, I would also argue that most founders have a very hard time dealing with uh, these kind of latter phases of, of growth. They tend to be very good at product market, hiring the initial team. Um, a, a smaller segment of them get excited by managing hundreds of people and, and making sure their organizations are, are, are really humming. But in these phases, there's some you know, really important operational decisions. Um, usually it's around uh, sales leadership. Should you hire somebody who's a CRO who manages both sales and customer success? Kind of what happens there? I know you mentioned Gainsight, which is a battery portfolio company. And they've got a lot of great lessons in customer success. So it's almost, a, in my mind, a parallel track we could talk about for customer success um, and, you know, in addition to sales like we just did. But customer success and kind of how upsells run, how renewals work, kind of how that interfaces with sales becomes a, a very challenging operational question in these phases. Um, there are, sometimes there's this question about hiring a COO. Uh, I think that is a tricky one as well for, for founders to figure out because there's a question around, well, what should report to the COO? What should report to the CEO? Um, you know, are there two leaders in a company or is there one decision maker? That That's an area of complexity. And the last one I'll highlight is partners and resellers. Uh, there's, this, there's this hope that somebody else will help you sell your product and get you to success of 100 million recurring. 
I, I've just never really seen that in my career. And many times I think founders will invest significant cycles in phases two, three, and four, trying to get a reseller networker, resell, reseller network working. Um, I just think it's not a great use of time. Until you get to at least 50 million recurring, and, and I'd argue even 100, nobody really cares. You have to, you have to control your own destiny. You have to make, uh, you have to figure out the secret, you know, playbook for selling. And once you've got that figured out, then then you can maybe teach it to others. So. Uh, those are some of the operational issues I see in these uh, later phases, phase six, is phase six and phase seven. Okay, awesome, awesome. Thanks, Neeraj. Now, um, yeah, I, I, I think you know th this has been, uh, well, I'd say this this podcast is like gold dust, uh, uh, you, you know, for for SaaS founders in that you've done all the hard work there, Neeraj, in uh, uh, you know looking at the the path of um, you know companies like Marketo, ServiceNow, Zendesk, I think Workday as well. Um, you know that have reached the the billion dollar, um, you know, magical number um, in, in terms of valuation, and they've gone through these phases. Um, so you know, hopefully, um, you, you know, the, the the founders that are listening, um, you know, will take a lot out of this, and they will be, um, you know, humming the the T two D three mantra, um, you, you know, every day. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, reading about it, listening to it and, um, you know, drilling it into them. Um, so I, I think it's great that you've, uh, you've come up with this. So really thank you for that. Anytime. And listen, hopefully the SaaS founders will be successful and they'll be, you know, the industry will be so successful that there'll be a T2, D3 character in Star Wars 8. Yeah, I, I think there's time for that. I think there's time for that. Um, <laughs> um, so yeah, thank, thanks again for, for being in the show. For the listeners um, at home, you know, if you if you liked uh, this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show, we really appreciate uh, if you rated and reviewed it uh, on iTunes. And uh, we'll see you next time. And Alex, last thing I just mentioned, there's a lot of uh, additional content that we've developed here at Battery around the definition of SaaS success. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's available on our website. Uh, we think about it as billion-dollar IPOs mm -hmm. uh, or um, companies that are north of 500 million. We've analyzed. I think uh, there's probably 50 to 60 of them um, that we've identified, and there's actually some really interesting patterns amongst the founders and their backgrounds. And I'd encourage your audience, if they had interest, to uh, to check out the uh, SaaS adventure section of the uh, Battery.com website. Excellent. No, uh, definitely um, uh, they they should do that and. I'll link to that in the uh, uh, in the transcripts as well. Um, so thanks for that, Neeraj. Anytime. Thank you, Alex. Cheers. Thanks.